Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back to another episode of Disastrous History. This week we're going to cover an extremely interesting disaster, one that took the better part of 40 years to occur. Or, more accurately, was just a bunch of smaller disasters all smushed together into one continuous disaster. Today we're going to talk about the Rocky Flats Weapons Plant. This is going to be a bumpy and somewhat confusing ride, so buckle in. The Rocky Flats Weapons Plant was a nuclear weapon parts manufacturer located near Arvada, Colorado, about 20 miles northwest of Denver, Colorado proper. Before we get too far into this, we need to cover a short history of nuclear weapons. So, the first weapons project began in Britain and Canada at the beginning of World War II with a project known as the Tube Alloys Project. Sometime around 1942, the United States began to push ahead of what Britain could accomplish during the ongoing war effort, so basically all of the research was essentially kicked over to the U.S. and the infamous Manhattan Project. On July 16, 1945, the U.S. tested the first nuclear weapon in the desert north of Alamogordo, New Mexico. This test, codenamed Trinity, was a test of a plutonium implosion bomb nicknamed Gadget. And then, on August 6, 1945, the United States dropped the first nuclear weapon in history. It was a uranium-based bomb called Little Boy that detonated above the city of Hiroshima in Japan. Three days later, on August 9, 1945, the United States dropped the second nuclear weapon in history, a plutonium-based bomb called Fat Man that detonated above the city of Nagasaki, Japan. To date, these are the only nuclear weapons dropped during wartime actions in the entire world. After World War II, the production of nuclear weapons in the United States really took off, also around the world as well, with the Soviet Union getting very much involved in the creation of nuclear weapons. The United States passed the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, which determined that the U.S. production of nuclear weapon development would be under civilian, not military control. Harry Truman was very adamant that it would be civilian and not military control. This act also created the United States Atomic Energy Commission. The Atomic Energy Commission would be in charge of all nuclear facilities and manufacturing. And as per usual, with the United States government being in charge of things, they immediately delegated all that to whatever private companies they could. And so that is how the Dow Chemical Company was chosen by the AEC as having the required experience and material available to machine plutonium for new atomic weapons after the start of the Korean War. On January 23, 1951, instructions were given to start site inspections to find a place to manufacture and machine plutonium. This became known as Project Apple. The plant was announced in Denver on March 23, 1951, and seems to have taken the Denver area by surprise since it had been a secret project. It would cost an estimated $45 million in construction costs, and the statement put out by the AEC at the time said that the plant would handle radioactive material, but they would not be building atomic bombs there. Construction was completed in September of 1953, but operations had already begun by that point, and just for interest purpose later, the average wage of a worker at the Rocky Flats plant was $2.13 an hour. That's about $21.67 an hour today, or essentially a $45,000 salary. Remember that. It will be important later. In 
The Rocky Flats plant's main objective was to manufacture and machine plutonium pits for atomic weapons. Basically, a plutonium pit is the trigger for a nuclear bomb. They would range in size from a grapefruit to about a soccer ball. So in order to properly talk about the various incidents that occurred at the Rocky Flats plant, we need to talk about how they manufactured and machined the pits. Work would be performed by workers in giant containers called a glove box. Essentially, it is a large glass box with multiple rubber gloves mounted to the sides that, they, that would keep the workers separated from radiation from the plutonium. At least they were supposed to. They would take old plutonium from retired warheads and purify it using nitric acid, hydrochloric acid, hydrogen fluoride, and a whole host of other chemicals. This work took place in two main buildings, Building 771 and Building 776. And one thing I'd like to point out before we really get into the full story here is that plutonium is pyrophoric, meaning it will spontaneously combust when exposed to air. Well, sometimes. Plutonium powder will essentially always spontaneously combust when exposed to air. Shavings may or may not. Solid ingots of plutonium will not. Basically, the reason for this is surface area to mass ratio. The higher the surface area compared to the mass, the more likely the plutonium is to spontaneously combust. This is the same idea as dust explosions. You don't toss a piece of wood in the air and try and light it on fire and it explodes. It's got a really low surface area, but if you take sawdust, toss that in the air, you have a whole bunch of surface area and plenty of oxygen, it will create an explosion. So you need a high surface area to mass ratio. So they have a low mass when it's a powder, but it has a high surface area because there's all of that powder exposed to the air. That is why powder spontaneously combusts and why sometimes shavings will spontaneously combust because say, shavings also have a high surface area with a low mass. They have a higher mass than powder, but not as high a mass as a solid ingot. So that's why plutonium spontaneously combusts when it is a powder and sometimes when it's shavings and not when it's an ingot. Now also, plutonium is, spoiler alert, radioactive. Now there are three types of radioactive decay or radiation. These three are alpha decay, beta decay, and gamma decay. Alpha decay can only go a short distance and cannot penetrate the outer layer of human skin. Beta decay can go through the outer layer of skin and cause problems. Gamma decay will run through you like Taco Bell on a Saturday night in a college town. Plutonium tends to gather in the liver and skeleton and can cause cancer. It's pretty much all bad all the time. Although if you were forced to ingest some plutonium, which I do not recommend, it is by far better to eat it than inhale it since it takes a significantly longer time to be absorbed through the contact inside your body than if you inhale it. If you inhale it, it will be absorbed in your body much, much faster than if you eat it. So if you see a bar of plutonium or dust plutonium, just go ahead and take a handful and shove it in your mouth and eat it. Don't actually do that, but you could and have problems, but less problems than if you went ahead and snorted a line of plutonium. Please don't snort a line of plutonium. That would be bad. Basically, that's a long way of saying just don't be exposed to plutonium. And if you are exposed, you if you don't have a meter, you aren't going to know you're exposed because it's odorless and colorless and tasteless and it's just basically Iocane powder from The Princess Bride. All right, enough about snorting plutonium. 
let's get to the story. The Rocky Flats plant began to work on creating plutonium pits in 1952. It would only take five years for the first major incident to occur at the super-secretive plant on the Flat Plateau up northwest of Denver. On September 11, 1957, the first major fire broke out in room 180 of building 771. Notice I said first major fire. There were almost certainly fires before this, but this is the first one recorded. And recorded is generous in this sense. A ton of information about the goings-on at Rocky Flats are still classified. Oh, and also if plutonium caught on fire, sometimes workers would just douse it with machining oil or whatever they could find themselves. Because this place was a hellhole, as you will find out. So anyway, that night, around 10 p.m. on September 11th, a fire started in one of the glove boxes. Firefighters responded when the workers couldn't put out the fire and had tried to pump carbon dioxide into the glove box to put out the fire. That didn't work. So then they decided to use water and got the fire out by 10.38 p.m. Everything all good, right? Right, guys? Everything's fine? Not even remotely. You see, while they were putting out that fire in the glove box... Unbeknownst to them, it had spread into the ventilation system above them, where it had begun to burn unchecked. And then everything went real bad. An explosion from a collection of various gases from the decomposing plutonium and dust ripped through the ventilation system. The force of the explosion ripped the lead cap helping to prevent plutonium from escaping the ventilation system off the smokestack and blew flames 200 feet into the air. This released a giant plutonium cloud that wafted down over the nearby town and Denver itself. It would take another 12 hours to fully extinguish the fire. And that's basically all we know about this fire. You would think that this would make local news. The basically 5-year-old weapons manufacturing plant just north of town literally exploded last night. Totally headline newsworthy, right? Nah, nah, nah. This is the Cold War. Everything gets covered up. There was no evacuation. There was no warning. Dow Chemical and the AEC basically let a huge chunk of the population around Rocky Flats become irradiated by plutonium and said not a word. Testing afterwards, years afterwards, flown plutonium 30 miles away in Denver. And one other thing. You remember how I said earlier that the explosion was caused by various gases and dusts? Well, that's not the only thing. When they were forced to use water to extinguish the fire, it's likely a criticality occurred, which is basically a nuclear chain reaction that releases certain fission products and releases those into the atmosphere as well. The telltale sign of a nuclear criticality is a blue flash. There are some firefighter reports that say there was a blue flash during the fire that night, but none of them have a name attached to them. But I tend to believe that there was a criticality that night. The reason I think that there was a criticality that night, which the Department of Energy, which is what the Atomic Energy Commission became, denies that there was a criticality that night. They still deny it to this day. The issue with that is there is evidence around where Rocky Flats plant used to be of two isotopes. Those two isotopes are strontium-90 and cesium-135. Those isotopes only occur after nuclear fission. Strontium-90 is even listed in a 2005 Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry report for the CDC. 
So either someone dropped a nuke on Denver and we all collectively forgot, or the DOE is lying that a criticality occurred somewhere near the Rocky Flats plant. It might have been the night of 1957 fire. We don't know. We might know one day whenever they finally declassify all the documents, but there had to have been a criticality at Rocky Flats plant. Oh, and the other thing, no one has any idea how much plutonium was actually released that night because the filters that would measure it were so dirty they couldn't measure or they were destroyed in the explosion. And one of their solutions to preventing another fire was to create an incinerator inside the building to burn off plutonium contaminated waste. Because apparently they didn't release enough plutonium into the atmosphere with the accidental fire, they decided they had to do it on purpose. And it would take 12 years for literally any of this to be released to the public. Not the radiation, they'd already gone ahead and released that to the public. But the information that the radiation had been released, that the plutonium had been released during the fire. From 1957 to 1969, the only people that knew that it occurred were the people at the Rocky Flats plant, the AEC, Dow Chemical, and probably the firefighters. But that's okay. Rocky Flats could go 12 years without having something else terrible go on between the next disaster, right? Right? Wrong. One of the things that they needed to figure out was where to store the waste that they had contaminated with plutonium and uranium. I didn't mention this earlier, but plutonium is essentially derived from uranium that is bombarded with, I'm sorry, deuterium, deuterium, which is an isotope of hydrogen. After the bombardment, it becomes neptunium, which then decays into plutonium. So they needed uranium to get more plutonium, and then had waste of both on site. And they needed something to do with it. The first plans, if you want to call them plans, were to just leave it wherever they put it, but it became an eyesore outside buildings, and drums began to explode occasionally. So they decided to dig a trench, and they buried all that waste in trenches. Good choice. Not. Oh, but... Then they dug 10 more, and when that didn't go super efficiently, they made a giant mound built out of dirt and radioactive waste. They just add another layer and cover it with more dirt, and then that got too full and tall. So the decision was made to have a pad called Pad 903, in which they put the radioactive waste oil in 55-gallon steel drums. How many steel drums? 5,240 of them. Now, in hindsight, this was a stupid decision. Also, this was a stupid decision in foresight. But this was the 50s and 60s. All that mattered was sticking it to the Soviet Union. So they just left these steel drums out in the elements. And, obviously, they rusted and began to leak. For years they did realize the barrels were leaking at one point and decided to put a rust inhibitor inside the barrels, but uh, that only works if the barrels aren't already leaking, which these were, so it was pointless. But out of sight, out of mind, and they built a fence around it and posted high radioactive signs around and promptly just let it sit there. Then, in 1967, Rocky Flats plant got absolutely pounded with rainstorm after rainstorm. 
This washed out some of the radioactive soil from around the 903 pad. So they scooped the dirt up and plopped it back behind the fence. Someone with half a brain realized that this would keep happening, so they made the decision to begin cleanup of the 903 pad. I did say half a brain, because instead of sealing the barrels before moving them, they just picked them up and moved them, so they began to slosh their contents out on the road as they were driving away. This made the road radioactive, and workers tried the best to cover up the radioactive parts with more asphalt, but that didn't work, because, duh. So they had to rip the entire road up. But terrible ideas appear to be standard for Rocky Flats. After they got all the barrels out, they had to figure out what to do about all the contaminated grass and weeds in the area. Someone had the bright idea of let's just burn it all, then grade it over with a bulldozer. Which just had a buttload of leaking plutonium contaminated waste. So predictably, when they set it all on fire, they allowed it to escape into the air. Which, duh, they just had a fire 10 years ago that released a bunch of plutonium into the air, and then they decided to just do it again themselves on purpose this time instead of on accident. It takes a lot of talent to be this willfully incompetent, because how in the, who in their right mind looks at a bunch of radioactive plants and is like, you know what we should do? We should burn it but it's not going to get any better. Because then, they couldn't figure out who should pay for what or how to deal with it, so they let the now open patch of dirt that is still contaminated with plutonium sit in the open for an entire year. It got rained on, and snowed, and wind, and whatever the hell is came through there, allowing for even more plutonium and uranium to escape and contaminate even more places. Eventually, they just decided to pour a giant concrete slab over it and call it good. Because that is this kind of solution that I would expect from this amount of incompetence in what is basically the 15th year of their operation. At some point during all this, Dow realized that they were running out of room for buildings because they had kept having to find some places to store all this waste. So what did they do to fix that? If you guess they set up open pits and incinerators to burn off waste, well, I'm worried about your sanity. Because that's exactly what they decided to do. To their credit, it was only supposed to be, quote, non-contaminated waste. But considering that essentially everything in that facility was contaminated, that seems highly unlikely. Also considering that they just burned off a whole bunch of contaminated waste, literally like a couple years ago, it probably was all contaminated waste. They would burn the stuff off until they couldn't burn any more, then shove a bunch of dirt in it and build a building over it. Good stuff. Great ideas. Excellent plan. But we're still not done with terrible things happening at Rocky Flats. <laughs> no, no, no. Because then in 1969, they had yet another fire. Well, before we get into that, they likely had hundreds of fires before this fire, but workers would just put the burning plutonium out by dunking it in oil with their hands. Because that was just a thing they did. I've seen estimations of 400 to 600 fires at Rocky Flats plant throughout the 1960s. But there is no official record because they either A. did not keep track of all the fires, or B. that number still remains classified. It's likely that it's a bit of both, that some of these fires were just 
small spontaneously combusting plutonium fires that workers were just like, ah, I'm going to pick it up and put it in oil or dump some oil on it. And it's also likely that there were more fires that were recorded and were worse than advertised and they just have not been declassified yet. So, on May 11th, 1969, a fire broke out in the processing section of a different plutonium processing building, Building 776. Although, again, it was inside a glove box. Rags with plutonium flecks on them spontaneously combusted. These rags began to burn and heat up inside of the glove box. Ventilation fans that were continuously running pulled heat and embers into a nearby glove box. This then ignited the plutonium in that glove box. At the time of this fire, there was over 7,000 pounds of plutonium in Building 776. The fire was not detected. There had been heat detectors installed in the glove boxes in case of a fire, but those were then uninstalled and stuck under the glove box, disconnected from everything, doing a whole lot of good. They were disconnected because they needed more room for processing plutonium, so they just decided we're going to take out the heat detectors and stick them somewhere so it seems like they're doing something, but we're not actually going to connect them to anything because why would we connect heat detectors in a building that has had four to 600 fires in it? But anyway, the fire was allowed to progress unchecked, basically. Once it began to ignite the plastic windows and the plastic gloves on the glove boxes, it was all over. The inside of the glove boxes were kept at a lower pressure to help keep plutonium in the glove boxes. But when those windows burnt through, air rushed in, further providing ventilation to the fire and allowing it to spread even more. At 2.27 p.m., a working heat detector set off an alarm at the fire department. Fire Captain Wayne Jester and his crew of three firefighters arrived and found heavy smoke and flames within the west end of Building 776. They went inside with carbon dioxide extinguishers and went to work. Except the fire basically just laughed at them and kept on going. So Captain Jester had to make a choice. Use water or let the building burn unchecked and collapse on itself. Using water could cause a criticality which would most likely kill him and all of his crew. The building collapsing would release radiation unchecked all over Denver. He had been there for the 1957 fire when they used water. He knew the risks. He chose water. They sprayed any plastic burning they saw, and they did everything they could to avoid spraying the burning plutonium. This entire time, the power in the building was still on. The power that was still powering the ventilation fans that pulled air out and through filters to prevent plutonium from escaping. Those same fans were pulling the fire into the ventilation system. There it began to burn through the filters, but a stroke of something, I, as best I can tell, dumb luck, saved the day from allowing the plutonium to begin just straight burning into the sky. And this is serious, this 100% happened. A firefighter backed his truck into a power pole and killed power to the plant, literally stopping the ventilation fans from pulling more heat into the system and preventing the rest of the filters from burning through and releasing plutonium into the air above Denver. Another event like 1957 was prevented because a firefighter did not look behind him long enough and he backed into a power pole. That is how close the United States was to yet another massive nuclear disaster. It is mind-blowing. 
but we're not done yet. And then they had another stroke of pure dumb luck. One firefighter, through ignorance of what would happen, tried to use his home stream to spray the spread out plutonium into one corner so he could extinguish all of it at once. You'll note that his captain had had to make the tough choice of choosing water over carbon dioxide and had given out orders to spray everything but the plutonium, but this guy decided, nah, 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 nah. I'm going to spray it all, and I'm going to put it all in one corner where I'm going to spray it all together because we make good choices at Rocky Flats. There's something about this area that makes you decide, let's just do the dumbest possible thing. Fortunately for him, and everyone at the plant, he was unsuccessful because the ash from the burning plutonium was sticking the plutonium in its place. It has been said that if he had succeeded, it's likely all that plutonium would have triggered a criticality, probably killing everyone there. Eventually, the fire was successfully extinguished, and it became the costliest industrial accident in United States history at that time. Obviously, there are more costly industrial disasters now, but at the time, it was the costliest. After the fire, fire investigators went in and were able to determine the area of origin and even the cause, the plutonium speckled rags, but lawyers for the AEC refused to allow them to put the cause in the report for fear that it would implicate certain individuals. Hell, Dow didn't even seem to care that the fire had happened. A spokesman for Dow basically said they didn't need any additional safety measures because, and I'm not kidding, there weren't any injuries, so that means that injuries can't happen. And the threat of a large-scale release of plutonium was unfounded because there wasn't a large-scale release of plutonium, which you'll remember was only prevented because one guy managed to back into the right power pole just in the nick of time. Basically, the United States... Nuclear safety was relying on one firefighter being an idiot, and that's basically the end of it, which, you know, seems pretty on brand for the United States. But this fire wasn't able to be hidden from the public like the 1957 fire. It was in the middle of the afternoon. It was Mother's Day. People were out and about, and they could see the smoke plume. It was in all the local papers. So some local scientists did some testing of soil near this plant. They predictably found plutonium. The plant then adamantly denied that they had a plutonium release during the 1969 fire, which then led to the discovery of the 1957 fire that did have a plutonium release. So that's just great. Can you imagine being that scientist that, hey, I found plutonium in this soil. We didn't have a plutonium release during this fire. What do you mean during this fire? Oh, we had plutonium released 12 years ago in a different fire. What different fire? Ah, it's not that big of a deal. Anyway, on July 1st, 1975, Dow Chemical stopped managing the plant and it was handed over to Rockwell International. Rockwell International did not do much better environmental-wise than Dow. Multiple land purchases were made around Rocky Flats to help create a buffer zone of contaminated land, but it would do no good. Weirdly, all throughout the late 70s and all of the 80s, things appeared to be running smoothly at the plant. They received several safety awards. Those were a lie. At the beginning of June 1989, 
the FBI informed the DOE and Rockwell that they would wanted to have a briefing on a potential terrorist threat. Instead, what actually happened was 80 EPA and FBI agents raided the plant to search for evidence of criminal violations of environmental protections. And they found a lot. Three DOE officials and five Rockwell employees were charged with environmental crimes. Rocky Flats had continued to use the plutonium incinerator I told you about earlier, well into the nighttime after the incinerator had been closed for safety reasons, among several other environmental abuses like dumping radioactive wastewater outside in the ground. Rockwell would eventually plead guilty to 10 counts of hazardous waste and water violations. They paid an $18.5 million fine. The plant was also added to the Superfund cleanup list in 1989, and the DOE called it its most dangerous contamination site. In September of 1989, Rockwell stopped managing the Rocky Flats site, and it was transitioned to a company called EG&G. The plant stopped creating weapons parts in 1992 after George H.W. Bush stopped production of nuclear warheads for submarines, and the site transitioned to being cleaned up permanently. But we haven't finished yet. Because I would really like to go over what it was like working at the Rocky Flats plant. So obviously things were bad in this plant, right? Like, things are constantly on fire. There is radioactive waste literally everywhere. It is terrible. But somehow, the reality is so much worse. Before we get into the worker stories, let's just describe what had to happen for this cleanup. Somehow... 1,100 pounds of plutonium was lost in ductwork, steel drums, glove boxes, and inside the walls all over Rocky Flats' plant. So, cleanup workers had to go in and figure out how to get all of that plutonium out, which you know is very important because, again, plutonium is radioactive. There were 13 rooms throughout Rocky Flats' plant that when a Geiger counter was used to measure how radioactive they were, the Geiger counter literally would not read the measurement because it was too high. After the 1969 fire, the company couldn't get the ceiling clean enough of radioactivity, so they just made a false ceiling slightly lower to seal off the radioactive up above the false ceiling, which is some interesting choices. It sounds like something a toddler would do. Or, not a toddler, more like a 7 or 8 year old. My closet is dirty. How do I fix this? Let's cover it with a blanket so I don't have to see it anymore. Now I want to remind you that the workers at Rocky Flats plant earned about $45,000 a year. Please keep that number in mind while I tell you the rest of this. Because it's just... Let's just get into it. Obviously to help machine plutonium, you need some pretty strong chemicals. Those chemicals would eat through basically everything. It ate through the glove boxes. It ate through the gloves on the glove boxes. It ate through the plumbing. Nowhere was safe. Everywhere was a potential contamination hazard. They would use tape to seal up holes, but then it would just eat through the tape. Or they would tape plastic over the holes, and then it would eat through that. If all of this sounds like a terrible plan, well, you would be correct. Because taping over holes when you're using a buttload of hydrochloric acid is not going to work for long. Workers in the plant called the plutonium nitrate crap. If you were hit with contamination, you were crapped up. If you exceed the government's annual radioactive dose limits, then you were crapped out and had to work a desk job. 
That is if they actually took the measurements. Again, $45,000 a year. And Building 771 we talked about earlier, the location of the 1957 fire, was so notorious for plutonium leaks, it was called the hole. A man named Jim Kelly worked in the hole for 23 years. One day, he had a huge drum of plutonium literally dumped on him. Those types of things were regular occurrences. One worker was working in the glove box when he felt something warm running down his leg. Hoping desperately someone was peeing on him, he was horrified to learn that it was plutonium nitrate. This was just constant. Just constantly, people were exposed to radiation. And sometimes they wouldn't even know it. You can't see it or taste it or smell it. It's literally iocane powder. It's just there all the time. One worker died of brain cancer at the age of 31 after working a plutonium pipe for most of his career. Shockingly, not. His brain was allegedly lost before the government could check for radiation. Staying in room in building 771, we have room 141, which contained a pump that leaked so often the room constantly had a flood of about 2 inches of plutonium nitrate on the floor. Eventually, the people there just gave up trying to clean the room because the radiations wouldn't fall below infinity, and so they just welded the door shut. Again, we apparently make terrible choices in the area of Rocky Flats plant, because instead of trying to clean up this or fix the leak on the pump, they just decided, ah, it's not worth it, let's just weld it shut and forget it's there. The readings on radioactivity in this room were literally infinity. It broke the scale. That is insane. And then, it's going to get worse. Sometimes, the plutonium nitrate would fill up in the glove box. This could lead to a dreaded criticality, so they literally pulled a drain out of the glove box and let all the plutonium nitrate flood onto the factory floor. And then, they would have to get down on their hands and knees and scrub the floors. By hand. $45,000 a year. But sometimes, that wouldn't work. It would seep into the concrete. So they would just paint epoxy over the radioactive spots. Some areas in the plant just looked like purple and brown polka-dotted rooms. One glove box was so radioactive, they just painted the entire thing with brown epoxy. Good stuff. $45,000 a year. After the 1969 fire, workers had to go into the building ducts to scrub away the radioactivity. Literally, they were crawling through the ductwork in the ceiling, trying to scrub away the radioactivity in the building. Jim DeAndrea spent two years crawling through ductwork in three pairs of coveralls, a full face mask, and a hood, scrubbing away with a sponge in radiation levels that read infinity. One day, he accidentally caught his hand on a jagged edge of sheet metal and was contaminated. Officials tried to wash the radiation off with cold water, but he was still registering as radioactive. Then they tried rubbing him with a brush. Still there. Then they doused his hand with bleach. Still radioactive. So, 
they have washed his hand with cold water, and that didn't work. They tried scrubbing his hand raw with a brush. That didn't work. They doused his entire hand with bleach. That didn't work. So, what was the one option left? Well, this is horrifying. But, they took out a scalpel and peeled away layer after layer after layer of skin on his hand until the radiation was gone. They literally cut layers of skin off of his hand until the radiation was gone. And then he just went right back to working. Because again, this was the Cold War, and they had to beat the Soviets at everything. Employees would wear what are dosimeter badges. Basically, you wear them, you are exposed to radiation a certain amount, and they're supposed to read it when you reach that point for the max amount of dosage of radiation for the month, then you're supposed to come out and sit out for the month. What they would do in actuality is they would go once a month, they would collect all the badges, and then say you're good and give you another one. What really happened was all of those badges said that the workers basically received 10 times what they should have in radiation every single month, every time they worked there. Now, a lot of the Rocky Flats employees are sick. They have various forms of cancer, and a lot of them have a disease called beryliosis, which is basically a lung disease from exposure to beryllium, which the United States does pay for because it's unlikely they were exposed to beryllium anywhere besides at Rocky Flats. But the United States does fight paying for cancer because there are a lot of ways to get cancer, and it's very hard to prove that the cancer they got was from Rocky Plant, Rocky Flats Plant. That is ridiculous in my opinion, but that's the story they're sticking with. In actual accidents at the plant, there were maybe two or three deaths, and two of those were by being hit by vehicles. So if you want to take safety in the strictest sense of, but did you die? Then technically Rocky Flats was fairly safe. But we are not going to do that because that is a ridiculous premise. So Rocky Flats was not safe. They were constantly exposed to radiation. And many, many of them have various forms of cancer that did end up killing them. So the Rocky Flats plant's actual death toll is in the at least hundreds at this point, if not thousands. But if you ask the Rocky Flats employees what they thought of the safety at the plant, then they're going to tell you it was safe because they were there to fight the Soviet Union and make bombs that would fight the Soviet Union and prevent the Soviet Union from attacking the United States. Rocky Flats would end up making a over 70,000 plutonium pits throughout its entire bomb manufacturing process. But that's not all of the ridiculousness at Rocky Flats. Some of the equipment in Building 776 after the 1969 fire was so radioactive, the plant said hell with it and wheeled all of the equipment into room 127, which they then sealed with 18 inches of concrete. That is how radioactive this stuff was. Cleanup at the Rocky Flats plant has been going on for years. In 1994, the location was renamed the Rocky Flats Environmental Technology Site. The last contaminated building and plutonium were shipped out in 2003. 
In 2007, about 4,000 acres of the site was transferred to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge. Luckily, several studies related to cancer have concluded that there have not been larger instances of cancer related to plutonium exposure in the Denver area in the general civilian population, and specifically around the area where Rocky Flats was located in the general population. This has no bearing on increased cancer rates among workers at Rocky Flats. And there are some locations around Rocky Flats that will remain slightly radioactive for the next several thousand years since plutonium's half-life is about 24,000 years. The Department of Energy continues to monitor the site for contamination and will for the foreseeable future. However, there's a problem with this. There is apparently a map that not many people have seen that shows where all of the contaminated waste was buried around Rocky Flats plant, which was a huge area. And the government decided that anything below six feet of dirt was allowed to have whatever level of radiation was there. There was no cleaning below six feet of dirt. So if they just dug past six feet, then there could be a buttload of radiation down there. The Rocky Flats plant site is, well, the whole area is now being turned into subdivisions and parks and stuff like that, as well as the Rocky Flats Wildlife Refuge. It is said that the radiation levels are safe in the area. Whether or not that will remain true for the future as more development occurs in the area is up for debate, but allegedly the DOE is continuing to monitor the situation, and hopefully we don't have a radioactive disaster in the Rocky Flats plant area in the future. It's really hard to state how close the United States came to its own Chernobyl. If things had gotten slightly different in 1957 or 1969, we could have had a major catastrophe right outside a major metropolitan city. Instead, we just had one of the most radioactive locations in the entire world. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Remember, you can always follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, H-S-T-R-Y, so Disastrous History without the vowels. You can also follow me on Instagram, Disastrous History, and you can follow me on TikTok, Disastrous History, where I do some videos of some shorter disasters and some fire-related videos and whatnot. So, remember, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, to rate and review the podcast let me know how I'm doing. If you want to send me an email and let me know how I'm doing, it's disastroushistory at gmail.com. Real quick, I want to make a shout out to my friend Josh over at Obscure History. He has a fantastic history podcast that I think you guys would really enjoy. So go give him a listen and let him know how he's doing. I think you guys would really enjoy it. As always, stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries. <laughs>